You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Molly Gloss is quite well known as a Western writer and also has one foot very firmly in the science fiction field. I think she is the winner of the Tip Tree Award for Wildlife. Her new novel is Hearts of Horses. The Jump Off Creek was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award and won the Oregon Book Award. And there was another big award called the Whiting Award. I was going to give a little introduction to this story, but I think I won't. I think uh, I will let it speak for itself, and I would like to welcome to our reading Molly Gloss. Um, I'm guessing some of you know this story already, but I'm reading it at Terry's request. Lambing season. From May to September, Delia took the churro sheep and two dogs and went up to Joe John's mountain to live. She had that country pretty much to herself all summer. Ken Owen sent one of his Mexican hands up every other week with a load of groceries, but otherwise she was alone, alone with the sheep and the dogs. She liked the solitude, liked the silence. Some sheep herders she knew talked a blue streak to the dogs, the rocks, the porcupines. They sang songs and played the radio, read their magazines out loud. But Delia let the silence settle into her. And by early summer, she had begun to hear the ticking of the dry grasses as a language she could almost translate. The dogs were named Jesus and Alice. Away to me, Jesus, she said when they were moving the sheep. Go by, Alice. From May to September, these words spoken in command of the dogs were almost the only time she heard her own voice. That, and when the Mexican brought the groceries, a polite exchange in Spanish about the weather, the health of the dogs, the fecundity of the ewes. The churros were a very old breed. The Obar Ranch had a federal allotment up on the mountain, which was all rimrock and sparse grasses well suited to the churros who were fiercely protective of their lambs and had a long stapled top coat that could take the weather. They did well on the thin grass of the mountain where other sheep would lose flesh and give up their lambs to the coyotes. The Mexican was an old man. He said he remembered churros from his childhood in the Oaxaca Highlands, the rams with their four horns, two curving up, two down. Bueno carne, he told Delia, uncommonly fine meat. The wind blew out of the southwest in the early part of the season, a wind that smelled of juniper and sage and pollen. In the later months, it blew straight from the east, a dry wind smelling of dust and smoke, bringing down showers of parched leaves and seed heads of yarrow and bittercress. Thunderstorms came frequently out of the east, enormous cloudscapes with hearts of livid magenta and glaucous green. At those times, if she was camped on a ridge, She'd get out of her bed and walk downhill to find a draw where she could feel safer. But if she was camped in a low place, she would stay with the sheep while a war passed over their heads. Spectacular, jagged flares of lightning, skull-rumbling cannonades of thunder. 
It was maybe bred into the bones of churros, a knowledge and a tolerance of mountain weather, for they shifted together and waited out the thunder with surprising composure. They stood forbearingly while the rain beat down in hard, blinding bursts. Sheep herding was simple work, although Delia knew some herders who made it hard, dogging the sheep every minute, keeping them in a tight group, moving all the time. She let the sheep herd themselves, do what they wanted, make their own decisions. If the band began to separate, she would whistle or yell, and often the strays would turn around and rejoin the main group. Only if they were badly scattered did she send out the dogs. Mostly, she just kept an eye on the sheep, made sure they got good feed, that the band didn't split, that they stayed in the boundaries of the Obar allotment. She studied the sheep for the language of their bodies and tried to handle them just as close to their nature as possible. When she put out salt for them, she scattered it on rocks and stumps as if she was hiding Easter eggs because she saw how they enjoyed the search. The spring grass made their manure wet, so she kept the wool cut away from the used tail area with a pair of sharp, short-bladed shears. She dosed the sheep with wormer, trim trimmed their feet, inspected their teeth, treated ewes for mastitis. She combed the burrs from the dogs' coats and inspected them for ticks. You're such good dogs, she told them with her hands. I'm very, very proud of you. She had some old binoculars, seven by 32s, and in the long, quiet days, she watched bands of wild horses miles off in the distance, ragged-looking mares with dorsal stripes and black legs. She read the back issues of newspapers, local newspapers, looking in the obits for names she recognized. She read spine-broken paperback novels and played solitaire and scoured the ground for arrowheads and rocks she would later sell to rockhounds. She studied the parched brown grass, which was full of grasshoppers and beetles and crickets and ants. But most of her days was spent just walking. The sheep sometimes bedded quite a ways from her trailer, and she had to get out to them before sunrise when the coyotes would make their kills. She was usually up by three or four and walking out to the sheep in darkness. Sometimes she returned to the camp for lunch, but always she was out with the sheep again until sundown when the coyotes were likely to return. And then she walked home after dark to water and feed the dogs, eat supper, climb into bed. In her first years on Joe John's, she had often walked three or four miles away from the band just to see what was over a hill or to study the intricate architecture of a sheep herder's monument. Stacking up flat stones in the form of an obelisk was a common herder's pastime. There are monuments all over that sheep country. And though Delia had never felt an impulse to start one herself, she admired the ones other people had built. She sometimes walked miles out of her way just to look at a rock pile up close. She had a mental map of the allotment divided into 10 pastures Every few days when the sheep had moved on to a new pasture, she moved her camp. She towed the trailer with an old Dodge pickup over the rocks and creek beds, the sloughs and dry meadows to the new place. For a while afterward, after the engine was shut off and while the heavy old body of the truck was settling onto its tires, she would be deaf, her head filled with a dull, roaring white noise. She had about 800 ewes as well as their lambs, many of them twins or triplets. 
The ferocity of the churro ewes in defending their offspring was sometimes a problem for the dogs, but in the balance of things, she knew it kept her losses small. Many coyotes lived on Joe John's, and sometimes a cougar or bear would come up from the salt pan desert on the north side of the mountain looking for better country to own. These animals considered the sheep to be fair game, which Delia understood to be their right, and also her right, hers and the dogs, to take the side of the sheep. Sheep were smarter than people commonly believed, and the churros smarter than other sheep she had tended. But my, by midsummer, the coyotes had passed the word among themselves, buen carne, and Delia and the dogs then had a job of work keeping the sheep out of harm's way. She carried a 32 caliber Colt pistol in an old-fashioned holster worn on her belt. If you're a coyote, you'd better be careful of this woman, she said with her body, with the way she stood and the way she walked when she was wearing the pistol. That gun and holster had once belonged to her mother's mother, a woman who had come west on her own and homesteaded for a while down in the Sprague River Canyon. Delia's grandmother had liked to tell the story, how a concerned neighbor, a bachelor with an interest in marriageable females, had pressed the gun upon her back when the Klamaths were at war with the army of General Joel Palmer and how she never had used it for anything but shooting rabbits. In July, a coyote killed a lamb while Delia was camped no more than 200 feet away from the bedded sheep. <clears throat> it was dusk and she was sitting on the steps of the trailer reading a two-gun western, leaning close over the pages in the failing light, and the dogs were dozing at her feet. She heard the small sound, a strange, high, faint squeal she did not recognize and then did recognize, and she jumped up and fumbled for the gun, yelling at the coyote, at the dogs, her yell startling the entire band to its feet, but the ewes making their charge too late, Delia firing too late, and none of it doing any good beyond a release of fear and anger. A lion might well have taken the lamb and tire. She had known of lion kills where the only evidence was blood on the grass and a dribble of entrails in the beam of a flashlight. But a coyote is small and will kill with a bite to the throat and then perhaps eat just the liver and the heart, though a mother coyote will take all she can carry in her stomach, bolt it down, and carry it to her pups. Delia's grandmother's pistol had scared this one off before it could even take a bite and the lamb was twitching and whole on the grass, bleeding only from its neck. The mother ewe stood over it, crying in a distraught and pitiful way, but there was nothing to be done, and in a few minutes the lamb was dead. There wasn't much point in chasing after the coyote, and anyway, the whole band was now a skittish jumble of anxiety and confusion. It was hours before the mother ewe gave up her grieving, before Delia and the dogs had the band calm and bedded down again, almost midnight. By then the dead lamb had stiffened on the ground, and she dragged it over by the truck and skinned it and let the dogs have the meat, which went against her nature, but was about the only way to keep the coyote from coming back for the carcass. While the dogs worked on the lamb, she stood with both hands pressed to her tired back, looking out at the sheep, the mottled pattern of their whiteness almost opalescent against the black landscape and the stars thick and bright above the faint outline of the rock ridges stood there a moment before turning toward the trailer, toward bed, and afterward she would think how the coyote and the sorrowing ewe and the dark of the July moon and the kink in her back, how all of that came together 
and was the reason she was standing there watching the sky, was the reason she saw the brief, brilliantly green flash in the southwest and then the sulfur yellow streak breaking across the night, southwest to due west on a descending arc onto lame man bench. It was a broad, bright ribbon, rainbow-wide, a cyanotic contrail. It was not a meteor. She had seen hundreds of meteors. She stood and looked at it. Things to do with the sky, with distance, you could lose perspective. It was hard to judge even a lightning strike, whether it had touched down on a particular hill or the next hill or the valley between. So she knew this thing falling out of the sky might have come down miles to the west of Lame Man, not onto Lame Man at all, which was two miles away, at least two miles, and getting there would be all ridges and rocks, no way to cover the ground in the truck. She thought about it. She had moved camp earlier in the day, which was always troublesome work, and it had been a blistering hot day, and now the excitement with the coyote. She was very tired, the tiredness like a weight against her breastbone. She didn't know what this thing was falling out of the sky. Maybe if she walked over there, she would find just a dead satellite or a broken weather balloon and not dead or broken people. The contrail thinned slowly while she stood there looking at it, became a wide streak of yellowy cloud against the blackness with the field of stars glimmering dimly behind it. After a while, she went into the truck and got a water bottle and filled it and also took the first aid kit out of the trailer and a couple of spare batteries for the flashlight and a handful of extra cartridges for the pistol and stuffed these things into a backpack and looped her arms into the straps and started up the rise away from the dark camp, the bedded sheep. The dogs left off their gnawing of the dead lamb and trailed her anxiously, wanting to follow or not wanting her to leave the sheep. Stay by she said to them sharply, and they went back and stood with the band and watched her go. That coyote, he's done with us tonight. This is what she told the dogs with her body walking away, and she believed it was probably true. Now that she decided to go, she walked fast. This was her sixth year on the mountain, and by this time she knew the country pretty well. She didn't use the flashlight. Without it, she became accustomed to the starlit darkness, able to see the stones and pick out a path. The air was cool, but the full of the smell of heat rising off the rocks and the parched earth. She heard nothing but her own breathing and the gritting of her boots on the pebbly dirt. A little owl circled once in silence and then went off toward a line of cottonwood trees standing in black silhouette to the northeast. Lame Man Bench was a great upthrust block of basalt grown over with scraggly juniper forest. As she climbed among the trees, the smell of something like ozone or sulfur grew very strong and the air became thick, burdened with dust. Threads of the yellow contrail hung in the, in the limbs of the trees. She went on across the top of the bench and onto slabs of shelving rock that gave a view to the west. Down in the steep-sided draw below her, there was a big, wing-shaped piece of metal resting on the ground, which she at first thought had been torn from an airplane, but then realized was a whole thing, not broken, and she quit looking for the rest of the wreckage. She squatted down and looked at it. Yellow dust settled slowly out of the sky, pollinating her hair, her shoulders, the toes of her boots, faintly dulling the oily black shine of the wing, the thing shaped like a wing. 
While she was squatting there looking down at it, something came out from the sloped underside of it, a coyote, she thought at first. And then it wasn't a coyote, but a dog built like a greyhound or a whippet, deep-chested, long-legged, very light-boned and frail-looking. She waited for somebody else, a man, to crawl out after his dog, but nobody did. The dog squatted to pee and then moved off a short distance and sat on its haunches and considered things. Delia considered too. She considered that the dog might have been sent up alone. The Russians had sent up a dog in their little Sputnik, she remembered. She considered that a skinny, almost hairless dog with frail bones would be dead in short order if left alone in this country. And she considered that there might be a man inside the wing, dead or too hurt to climb out. She thought how much trouble it would be getting down this steep rock bluff in the darkness to rescue a useless dog and a dead man. After a while, she stood and started picking her way into the draw. The dog by this time was smelling the ground, making a slow and careful circuit around the black wing. Delia kept expecting the dog to look up and bark, but it went on with its intent inspection of the ground as if it was stone deaf, as if Delia's boots making a racket on the loose gravel was not an announcement that someone was coming down. She thought of the old Dodge truck, how it always left her ears ringing, and wondered if maybe it was the same with this dog and its wing-shaped Sputnik, although the wing had fallen soundless across the sky. When she had come about halfway down the hill, she lost footing and slid down six or eight feet before she got her heels dug in and found a handful of willow scrub to hang on to. A glimpse of this movement, rocks sliding to the bottom or the dust she raised, must have startled the dog, for it leaped backward suddenly and then reared up. They looked at each other in silence, Delia and the dog. Delia standing, leaning into the steep slope a dozen yards above the bottom of the draw, and the dog standing next to the Sputnik, standing all the way up on its hind legs like a bear or a man, and no longer seeming to be a dog, but a person, with a long, narrow muzzle and a narrow chest, turned-out knees, delicate, dog-like feet. Its genitals were more cat-like than dog, a male set but very small and neat and contained. Dog's eyes, though, dark and small and shining below an anxious brow, so that she was reminded of Jesus and Alice, the way they had looked at her when she had left them alone with the sheep. She had years of acquaintance with dogs, and she knew enough to look away break off her stare. Also, after a moment, she remembered the old pistol and holster at her belt. In cowboy pictures, a man would unbuckle his gun belt and let it down on the ground as a gesture of peaceful intent, but it seemed to her this might only bring attention to the gun, to the true intent of a gun, which is always killing. This woman is nobody at all to be scared of, she told the dog with her body standing very still along the steep hillside, holding on to the scrub willow with her hands, looking vaguely to the left of him where the smooth curve of the wing rose up and gathered a veneer of yellow dust. The dog, the dog person, opened his jaws and yawned the way a dog will do to relieve nervousness. And then they were both silent and still for a minute. When finally he turned and stepped toward the wing, it was an unexpected, delicate movement, exactly the way a ballet dancer steps along on his toes, knees turned out, lifting his long, thin legs. 
and then he dropped down on all fours and seemed to become almost a dog again. He went back to his business of smelling the ground intently, though every little while he looked up to see if Delia was still standing along the rock slope. It was a steep place to stand. When her knees finally gave out, she sat down very carefully where she was, which didn't spook him. He had become used to her by then, and his brief sliding glance just said, that woman up there is nobody at all to be scared of. What he was after or wanting to know was a mystery to her. She kept expecting him to gather up rocks like all those men who'd gone to the moon, but he only smelled the ground, making a wide, slow circuit around the wing, the way Alice always circled round the trailer every morning, nose down, reading the dirt like a book. And when he seemed satisfied with what he'd learned, he stood up again and looked back at Delia, a last look delivered across his shoulder before he dropped down and disappeared under the edge of the wing a grave and inquiring look, the kind of look a dog or a man will give you before going off on his own business, a look that says, you be okay if I go? If he had been a dog and if Delia had been close enough to do it, she'd have scratched the smooth head, felt the hard bone beneath, moved her hands around the soft ears. Sure, okay, you go on now, Mr. Dog. This is what she would have said with her hands. Then he crawled into the darkness under the slope of the wing where she figured there must be a door, a hatch, letting into the body of the machine, and after a while he flew off into the dark of the July moon. In the weeks afterward, on nights when the moon had set or hadn't yet risen, she looked for the flash and streak of something breaking across the darkness out of the southwest. She saw him come and go to that draw on the west side of Lame Man Bench twice more in the first month. Both times, she left her grandmother's gun in the trailer and walked over there and sat in the dark on the rock slab above the draw and watched him for a couple of hours. He may have been waiting for her, or he knew her smell, because both times he reared up and looked at her just about as soon as she sat down. But then he went on with his business. That woman is nobody to be scared of, he said with his body, with the way he went on smelling the ground, widening his circle and widening it, sometimes taking a clod or a sprig into his mouth and tasting it the way a mild-mannered dog will do when he's investigating something and not paying any attention to the person he's with. Delia had about decided that the draw behind Lame Man Bench was one of his regular stops, like the ten campsites she used over and over again when she was herding on Joe John's Mountain. But after those three times in the first month, she didn't see him again. At the end of September, she brought the sheep down to the Obar. After the lambs had been shipped out, she took her band of dry ewes over onto the Nelson Prairie for the fall. And in mid-November, when the snow had settled in, she brought them to the feedlots. That was all the work the ranch had for her until lambing season. Jesus and Alice belonged to the Obar. They stood in the yard and watched her go. In town, she rented the same room as the year before and as before, spent most of a year's wages on getting drunk and standing other herders to rounds of drink. She gave up looking into the sky. In March, she went back out to the ranch. In bitter weather, they built jugs and mothering up pens and trucked the pregnant ewes from green where they'd been feeding on wheat stubble. Some ewes lambed in the trailer on the way in, and after every haul, there was a surge of lambs born. 
Delia had the night shift where she was paired with Roy Joyce, a fellow who raised sugar beets over in the valley and came out for the lambing season every year. In the black, freezing cold middle of the night, eight or ten ewes would be lambing at a time. Triplets, twins, big singles, a few quads, ewes with lambs born dead, ewes too sick or confused to mother. She and Roy would skin a dead lamb and feed the carcass to the ranch dogs and wrap the fleece around a bummer lamb, which was intended to fool the bereaved ewe into taking the orphan as her own, and sometimes it worked that way. All the mothering up pens swiftly filled and the jugs filled, and still some ewes with new lambs stood out in the cold field waiting for a room to open up. You couldn't pull the stuck lambs with gloves on. You had to reach into the womb with your fingers to turn the lamb or tie cord around the feet or grasp the feet barehanded so Delia's hands were always cold and wet, then cracked and bleeding. The ranch had brought in some old converted school buses to house the lambing crew, and she would fall into a bunk at daybreak and then not be able to sleep, shivering in the unheated bus with the gray daylight pouring in the windows and the endless daytime clamor out at the sh lambing sheds. All the lammers had sore throats, colds, nagging coughs. Roy Joyce looked like hell, deep bags as blue as bruises under his eyes, and Delia figured she looked about the same, though she hadn't seen a mirror, not even to draw a brush through her hair since the start of the season. By the end of the second week, only a handful of ewes had not lambed. The nights became quieter. The weather cleared and the thin skiff of snow melted off the grass. On the dark of the moon, Delia was standing outside the mothering up pens, drinking coffee from a thermos. She put her head back and held the warmth of the coffee in her mouth a moment, and as she was swallowing it down, lowering her chin, she caught the tail end of a green flash and a thin yellow line breaking across the sky. So far off, anybody else would have thought it was a meteor. But it was bright and dropping from southwest to due west, maybe right on to lame man bench. She stood and looked at it. She was so very goddamn tired and had a sore throat that wouldn't clear and she could barely get her fingers to fold around the thermos. They were so split and tender. She told Roy she felt sick as a horse and did he think he could handle things if she drove herself into town to the urgent care clinic. And she took one of the ranch trucks and drove up the road a short way and then turned onto the rutted track that went up to Joe John's. The night was utterly clear and you could see things a long way off. She was still an hour's drive from the Churro summer range when she began to see a yellow-orange glimmer behind the black ridge line, a faint nimbus like the ones that marked distant range fires on summer nights. She had to leave the truck at the bottom of the bench and climb up the last mile or so on foot, had to get a flashlight out of the glove box and try to find an uphill path with it because, of the, fluttery reddish, because the fluttery reddish light show was finished by then, and the thick pall of smoke overcast the sky and blotted out the stars. Her eyes itched and burned and tears ran from them. She went up slowly, breathing through her mouth. The wing had burned a skid path through the scraggly junipers along the top of the bench and had come apart into about a hundred pieces. She wandered through the burnt trees and the scattered wreckage, shining her flashlight into the smoky darkness, not expecting to find what she was looking for. But there he was, lying apart from the scattered pieces of metal out on the smooth slab rock at the edge of the draw. He was panting shallowly 
and his close coat of short brown hair was matted with blood. He lay in such a way that she immediately knew his back was broken. When he saw Delia coming up, his brow furrowed with worry. A sick or a wounded dog will bite, she knew that, but she squatted next to him. It's just me, she told him, by shining the light not in his face, but in hers. Then she spoke to him. Okay, she said, I'm here now. Without thinking too much about what the words meant or whether they meant anything at all, and she didn't remember until afterward that he was very likely deaf anyway. He sighed and shifted his look from her to the middle distance, where she supposed he was focused on approaching death. Near at hand, he didn't resemble a dog all that much, only in the long shape of his head, the folded over ears, the round darkness of his eyes. He lay on the ground flat on his side like a dog that's been run over and is dying by the side of the road. But a man will lay like that too when he's dying. He had small fingered nailless hands where a dog would have had toes and front feet. Delia offered him a sip from her water bottle, but he didn't seem to want it. So she just sat with him quietly, holding one of his hands, which was smooth as lambskin against the cracked and roughened flesh of her palm. The batteries in the flashlight gave out, and sitting there in the cold darkness, she found his head and stroked it, moving her sore fingers lightly over the bone of his skull and around the soft ears, the loose jowls. Maybe it wasn't any particular comfort to him, but she was comforted by doing it. Okay, Mr. Dog, you can go on. She heard him sigh and then sigh again and each time wondered if it would turn out to be his death. She had used to wonder what a coyote, or especially a dog, would make of this doggish man. And now, while she was listening, waiting to hear if he would breathe again, she began to wish she'd brought Alice or Jesus with her, though not out of that old curiosity. When her husband had died six years before, at the very moment he took his last breath, the dog she'd had then had barked wildly and raced back and forth from the front to the rear door of the house as if he'd heard or seen something invisible to her. People said it was her husband's soul going out the door or his angel coming in. She didn't know what it was the dog had seen or heard or smelled, but she wished she knew. And now she wished she had a dog with her to bear witness. She went on petting him even after he had died, after she was sure he was dead, went on petting him until his body was cool, and then she got up stiffly from the bloody ground and gathered rocks and piled them onto him, a couple of feet high so he wouldn't be found or dug up. She didn't know what to do with the wreckage, so she didn't do anything with it at all. In May, when she brought the churro sheep back to Joe John's mountain, the pieces of the wrecked wing had already eroded, were small and smoothed edged like the bits of sea glass you find on a beach. And she figured this must be what it was meant to do, to break apart into pieces too small for anyone to notice and then to quickly wear away. But the stones she'd piled over his body seemed like the start of something. So she began the slow work of raising them higher into a sheep herder's monument. She gathered up all the smooth, eroded bits of wing, too, and laid them in a series of widening circles around the base of the monument. 
She went on piling up stones through the summer and into September until it reached 15 feet. Mornings, standing with the sheep miles away, she would look for it through the binoculars and think about ways to raise it higher, and she would wonder what was buried under all the other monuments sheep herders had raised in that country. At night, she studied the sky, but nobody came for him. In November, when she finished with the sheep and went into town, she asked around and found a guy who knew about stargazing and telescopes. He loaned her some books and sent her to a certain pawn shop, and she gave most of a year's wages for a 14 by 75 telescope with a reflective lens. On clear, moonless nights, she met the astronomy guy out at the Little League baseball field, and she sat on a fold-up canvas stool with her eye against the telescope's finder while he told her what she was seeing, Jupiter's moons, the Pelican Nebula, the Andromeda Galaxy. The telescope had a tripod mount, and he showed her how to make a little jerry-built device so she could mount her old 7x32 binoculars on the tripod, too. She used the binoculars for their wider view of star clusters and small constellations. She was indifferent to most discomforts, could sit quietly in one position for hours at a time, teeth rattling with the cold, staring into the immense vault of the sky until she became numb and stiff, barely able to stand and walk back home. Astronomy, she discovered, was a work of patience, but the sheep had taught her patience, or it was already in her nature before she ever took up with them. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.